Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to another episode of the Insider Outsider podcast. Uh, this, we have some amazing guests this, this episode. Uh, Jin He Lee is the Senior Deputy Director of the uh, Litigation and the Director of Strategic Initiatives for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund coming out of New York. Chris, Chris Hollinger is a partner in Old Mulvaney and Myers in law firm in San Francisco. Um, both of you came to be involved in, with uh, us as WMFDP and FDP Global after um, our work was misportrayed on Fox News, um, part of several of those events that with another uh, diversity consulting firm that caused the Trump administration to create the executive order ban uh, EO13950, which was banning the use of the word privilege and other things attached to uh, critical race theory in the workplace, which stopped some of our work um, and um, paused a lot of others. Um, in the work, and that's that was rescinded uh, when the Biden administration came. But um, so, do you want to each talk about your organization and what you do and stand for, and how you came involved with the process of us collaborating, Jen? Maybe you can start with that. So I uh, am at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which for over eighty years have been uh, one of the leading legal advocates advocacy organizations in support of racial equality. We were founded by the uh, the first Black Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. So when the uh, executive order 13950 was issued by President Trump, I mean, this really attacked the heart of what LDF is about, which is, you know, having these important efforts to promote diversity, to recognize systemic inequalities, and to try to remedy that. And, and so when this executive order was issued, you know, we immediately, as, as lawyers, wanted to strategize about how we could challenge it because we clearly thought it was unconstitutional for a number of reasons. And we were also really concerned about the, the immediate impact that the executive order was having on these important diversity and inclusion trainings that, that are happening in the private sector as well as in, in the federal and state governmental levels. And, uh, and so we were introduced to uh, white men as, as full diversity partners, as well as other um, really important and leading diversity trainers on the uh, immediate harm that, that you, know, you all and others had been experiencing because of this unconstitutional order. And, and especially the, the chilling effect that it had and the misinformation that this executive order had been promoting when it comes to you know, what, what it is that um, that you all do, as well as other diversity trainers. So, so that was kind of our you know, involvement uh, in connection with the executive order, as well as our um, collaboration 
with 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 you. And then um, and then once we had reached out to you to perhaps be involved in our litigation, we wanted to make sure that um, that we also had some really great um, uh, legal representation. Uh, you know, one of the one of the wonderful things that have happened in the past twelve years is just how much the the private bar, you know, private um, uh, law firms have really stepped up in terms of addressing this moment uh, of national, you know, reckoning when it comes to systemic inequalities in our country, especially you know, racial uh, justice inequalities facing the Black community. And, um, and, and O'Melveny Myers has been just one of the law firms that have really stepped up and we've had a longstanding relationship with them. So I immediately thought of them as a law firm to, to be involved in this important effort. Thanks, Jen. Um, Chris, what would you add from your organization's perspective too? Hi, I just wanted to make clear at the outset that um, I am expressing my opinions and not the views of my law firm, O'Melveny and Myers, but these are the opinions of Chris Hollinger. You know, and Jen uh, uh, touched on it a little bit, and she's exactly right. The my law firm is a large private law firm, not a uh, you know sort of a nonprofit organization. But for the past few years, in particular, uh, our you know our pro bono program has really focused on issues of racial justice, or what we describe as sort of anti-racism. And and my, myself personally, although I've been a labor and employment lawyer for thirty plus years. Uh, the last few years, I've been very much dedicated to various pro bono projects in this area. It's just something of extreme personal importance to me. So I'd previously worked on a case with Jen involving police reform in the state of New York, and we had very good results in that case. So she reached out to me, and in my role in the litigation that LDF filed was to present from your perspective, WM white men, full diversity partners perspective, what was wrong and misguided about Trump's executive order and how it was impacting your business. And so that's kind of the closing of the circle. And that's how um, I got to meet you and have the the privilege of seeing what you do. And uh, and there you have it. Yeah, That's how we all got together. And now we are here. Well, I I just want to say how much I appreciate and our firm appreciates the collaboration with both of you and your organizations. Um, it's been a godsend to, uh, you know, face the impact of that EO with your support and the collaboration and feel like we're part of a bigger cause and that the, what happened to us can actually be support of a greater movement. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the impact of that EO and, you know, anything you want to share about how you responded and in terms of um, both with your involvement with us and others? Well, I can begin you know, first about what the Legal Defense Fund did. You know, we initially wanted to, to present a legal challenge to it because we immediately knew that the EO was unconstitutional, um, both because it really uh, censored uh, you know, private entities, federal contractors, subcontractors, grantees from engaging in important conversations about race and uh, sex inequalities and gender inequalities in the workplace. Um, And also because it was so blatantly uh, attacking um, the the efforts to, to remedy racial inequalities, even just from the preamble, it's revisionist history 
about the racism that has existed in our country since its founding. I mean, it was just really, it was really appalling how, you know, how it, it just, it was a very false narrative that really attacked very important efforts that, that you and others have made to kind of acknowledge the, the truth of our history. And, and so, uh, so we uh, represented the National Urban League, the National Fair Housing Alliance, um, the uh, and and others to uh, to you know bring a legal challenge, and at the same time we have been partnering with the African American Policy Forum on a campaign called the Truth Be Told campaign to really uplift the the very serious harm that the EO had had uh, imposed on um, on on so many uh, uh, companies, employers, diversity trainers, academic institutions, professors. It's just it, the the harm was very widespread. But also to really to support uh, the importance of of not only stopping the harm from the EO, but the need to do more. Because actually, even before the executive order was issued, there was a real need to do actually more when it comes to creating more, you know, to, to, to equal the playing field and to have better equalities and more opportunities for um, historically margin, marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, uh, for me as a, a, as a lawyer in a private law firm, you know, we don't have federal government contracts, and that's generally true of the legal profession. Uh, the federal government happens to have its own really large law firm you know, called the Department of Justice. So they generally don't contract with private law firms. And because of that, we were not directly impacted uh, in terms of the executive order. And, but what we did do and have continued to do is to uh, use our our skills and our energy and pro bono work uh, on behalf of different organizations, including in this litigation. And that's really where uh, private law firms can, uh, I think, that's sort of how we could respond. Uh, I know we may talk a little bit later. It's always possible that uh, similar bills or similar executive orders will be issued at the state and local level. And once that happens, it's more likely that law firms will be affected directly because they mm-hmm. tend to have contracts with you know, city governments and state governments, but not so much the United States government. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm realizing there, there may be some listeners here that aren't familiar much with the EO 13950 and what it actually, um, uh, you know, was trying to articulate or do and what were some of the impacts of it. So is there any background or way you want to say at a high level what it was doing or how it mischaracterized um, what what's happening in the world or how it's describing us in a way that was mischaracterizing our work, for example? Sure. It's, it, it, the very title of it was misleading because it's, you know, it, it, the executive order was titled, you know, combating race and, and sex stereotyping. Um, and, and it, it kind of defined what that was and it defined what were divisive concepts. So, you know, these are definitions that the Trump administration created for themselves. And, and in that definition, it really misconstrued really important concepts such as um, systemic inequalities, um, privileges that are associated with these inequalities, um, the the notion that there might be any kind of discomfort 
when confronting, you know, the, the, the various inequalities that exist and, and privileges and just, you know, advantages and disadvantages that people have based on that. And, and so by kind of, by defining what is considered divisive and, and what is considered stereotyping on its own terms, which really has no basis in fact or in reality, um, they in effect censored and prohibited uh, private federal contractors and subcontractors and their vendors and entities, you know, nonprofit entities that receive a federal funding through grants. They, you know, is essentially the federal government censoring these kind of entities from having uh, diversity inclusion trainings that that um, use what the federal government has prohibited as divisive concepts. And, and also, you know, really importantly, in terms of uh, federal grantees, you know, pro- prohibited them from kind of engaging in any kind of communication on those on those issues. And, and so it, 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 it was really quite shocking that in a country like the United States that really values First Amendment, you know, principles and, um, and really values open discourse about important issues to have an executive order from you know the from President Trump that you know essentially was censorship and and imposing President Trump and his administration's views on the rest of the country and uh, and 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 you know that was immediately denounced by all you know people of all walks of life all kinds of industries both private nonprofits private civil rights advocates and so forth and, and rightly so because there was nothing more un-American than the executive order that was issued by by President Trump. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and I I know for us, we felt like somebody took examples of our work and twisted it totally around to make it look like we're telling white guys that they're toxic, that they're bad people, that they have to write letters of apology. None of that is true. And yet it got accepted and, and put onto national media without being tested or questioned. And then that got swallowed by the Trump administration as a truth and um, justification for this work. So, Chris, you worked hard with us to help us, me, clarify a declaration that was telling more of what actually is real with us. What do you want to add to what Jin was saying? Well, it's, um, it's a, I mean, you're exactly right, but it's a hard, um, in this day and age, unfortunately, given the, the, I'll just say that, you know, sort of the political polarization or dysfunction in this country, there is such a tendency on the part of, you know, one side or the other to only look at certain facts and to, you know, sort of selective ignorance or uh, alternative facts, right? I mean, yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of um, how this all started four years ago, five years ago. And you especially, I, I think, see this in the, the attacks on this notion of critical race theory, which has become sort of a buzzword or a bogeyman mm-hmm. for the opponents of really any uh, DE&I efforts. And, you know, the, 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 the opponents of these kinds of ideas really try to convey this theory that, number one, uh, it's sort of a zero-sum game where any... Uh, any improvement in the opportunities or the treatment of historically disadvantaged groups will operate to the detriment of, frankly, white men, right? Sort of, and that's not necessarily true. That doesn't have to be the case. And also, there's this notion that they convey that 
the if you accept or you talk about the fact that historically, you know, white men primarily have had certain built-in advantages that all of a sudden you're denigrating their achievements. And again, that's not that's not true either. You know, no one is saying that yeah. you know, just because you may have been able to have a certain opportunity ahead of someone else 50 years ago or based on where you lived and where you went to school, no one is saying that therefore the achievements you had are unwarranted or not important. It's just um, there's there are ways to you know make a bigger pie or to treat everyone fairly and provide equal opportunity that we can do without denigrating the others. But yet the opponents just spin things in a certain way, which is the way we sort of unfortunately um, are operating, I think, in the, the civil community at large today. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I mean, that's one of the biggest um, sadnesses to experience the portrayal of our work as a win-lose. You know, if others are going to gain, white men are going to lose. When actually what we've spent our last 25 years helping white men discover, and others too, is that everybody wins. And that um, you know, not only, you know, we have as much to gain as any other group around understanding um, the terrain around race and gender and other differences and how to partner better. And I've seen um, white men feel life changing experiences where they actually are much more effective at partnering across difference. They're much more clear about their role to engage each other to create more inclusion as well as not leaving the burden to others to educate. And then they personally have more enriched relationships with their family and their kids because they understand the context of their, their daughters and their sons' lives and how they've been socialized, their significant others. And so I experienced, um, you know, so many men grateful for that kind of learning. And it's so different than what got portrayed. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's, there is so much possibility and it's so core to who we are as America to actually work through, talk through, lean into tough issues and, and courageously find win-win. And yet the EO continues to have chilling effects, um, even if it's rescinded. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that, Jen, some more in terms of what, uh, you know, I just was telling you all this morning, the paper that I'm reading in Idaho anti-indoctrination bill is approved. So some of these mischaracterizations around critical race theory have moved from the federal level and the Biden administration to now state, um, you know, and we've, we've had uh, Democratic and Republican leaders of all sorts for 25 years equally find this kind of learning valuable. And yet I think there's that effort in this EO to politicize this as if it's only supporting uh, a liberal perspective when actually we've had many conservative leaders find this stuff equally valuable. So what else, what else do you want to say about the continuing impacts or your concerns about them? When President Biden came into office, you know, he immediately issued his own executive order that rescinded EO 13950, which is something that you know, organizations like my own had really pushed for. So we were very happy to to see that happen, and also a commitment not to enforce um, EO13950 to the extent that it had been incorporated into, you know, contracts and other agreements, you know, prior to uh, President Biden coming into office. But what? But 
there is no doubt that there is continues to be concerns about the chilling effects of President Trump's executive order because you know, for the president of the United States to have issued an order like that, it really, at a national scale, placed the imprimatur of the federal government on these kinds of uh, unconstitutional, you know, anti-democratic, anti-American efforts to censor essentially conversations about, you know, racial and, and gender inequalities. And, and what we have seen, and I think this is what you're referring to, Michael, is, you know, other, other governmental entities, state governments, Kind of taking the mantle and, and using, you know, EO13950 as a template for them to kind of engage in their own efforts to, to censor these kinds of uh, conversations and, um, and communications within the workplace and also in academic settings, which is really quite frightening because, um, again, again, these, these definitions that were in EO13950 was not grounded in fact, it was not grounded in historical fact or even present day facts. It was not grounded in, in reality at all. What it was, was a um, an effort to impose a, a, a particular perspective and worldview, which is inaccurate on, on others. And, and we're seeing that at the local level as well. And so the fight is certainly not over. And then, and I just also want to emphasize that, you know, it's not as if these types, these trainings, just the fact of having these training trainings is sufficient. I mean, not only should we have these conversations, but there also needs to be real efforts to ensure that there is meaningful um, um, expansion of opportunities for people of color, for women, for the LGBTQ community. Um, and so, so, you know, we're up against trying to push back against these kinds of um, copycat legislation, but at the same time, we want to be affirmative and to really kind of go beyond just having these kinds of trainings and, um, and and to really implement true um, true progress and advancement, um, which you know I think that a lot of 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 you know, uh, companies in the private sector as well as you know in, in other areas as well have really kind of expressed a commitment to, especially in the past past uh, twelve months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just like to, and I obviously agree with everything Jin has said. I just sort of. You know, the way I look at this is not so much what effect does the executive order continue mm-hmm. to have despite its revocation. I, I ask myself, what is the effect of the executive order's revocation? And my answer is not much. You know, <laughs> the the rhetoric in President Trump's executive order resonated with a significant portion of the American public. And that's mm-hmm. just, I think, true. Obviously, in certain parts of the country, maybe it resonates more than others. But, you know, there's a there is a big audience for the views he was expressing in the executive order, especially in the preamble. And the people who agree with those views, they're not going away. And they're not going to change their views with a lot without a lot of work on their part and our part, on everyone's part. So that's kind of how I um you know, I think if if President Trump's executive order had never existed, we'd be pretty much in the same position, you know, right now today. We have a lot of work to do. And I think it's important for everyone uh, to remember that. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just sitting with that. It's like the there is, like you said, plenty of work to do. Um 
Anything else you want to share before we start talking about corporate America's role and others who are listening and their role about, you know, what is continuing to happen? I have to agree. Uh, Oh, go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead. I was going to say, no, I'd like to talk about corporate America's role. Well, I just, I was just going to agree to what you had said about, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think that, you know, as, as a civil rights lawyer, we see continuing inequalities all the time. And, and you could just look at, you know, like, for example, the, the, the judiciary and, or you look at uh, prosecutors, or you look at, um, and we're, I know we're going to be talking about corporate America, but, uh, you know, executives, uh, it, it, it's just, there's just a real need and potential for, you know, breaking down barriers of opportunity. And, 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 and we should not be satisfied with the inequalities that we've, uh, you know, that we've been experiencing has seen for generations and generations, you know, it's, it is, it is, you know, it's important to kind of make a, a verbal statement or some sort of commitment, but I think it really matters. It's like the proof is in the pudding as to like what actually happens. What are you going to do about it? And I think that's what we're going to hopefully see in the coming in the coming months, in the coming years, uh, is whether or not we can make true progress when it comes to diversity. Uh, because you know, for far too long there has been a real gap in terms of access to certain kinds of professions, certain kinds of positions, certain kinds of, of um, industries. And, and, you know, I think now is the time to say enough is enough. Yeah. And we're coming up on a year um, from the death of George Floyd. Just saw the verdict come out for the Derek, the primary police officer and his murder of, of, of George Floyd. And that, um, you know, so there's like these cycles happening and then all the protests that happened across the world around Black Lives Matter. And that was in the spring and summer last 2020. And then how swiftly this EO brought back, uh, you know, a chilling um, effect on all that. And so seeing corporate America respond strongly, many of them alongside of the Black Lives Matter, holding that up, some of them responding around the anti-Asian hate crimes, some of them, you know, and, and then there, even the reactions lately, some of them to the impact on the voter rights um, legislations that have been coming in waves too. So what is, what do you notice about corporate America's response? What does it mean to you? And how does it make you feel? What are you wanting, hoping for? I'll, I'll go first on that, but before I do, I wanted to mention a couple things that you mentioned just now about the uh, the George Floyd murder trial of Officer Chauvin, ex-Officer Chauvin, now convict yep. Chauvin. Mm-hmm. The um, One of the things that was interesting from a lawyer's perspective is that in that case, the trial judge gave a jury instruction about con- unconscious bias, about implicit bias, which... I would say should not be a controversial topic, mm-hmm. but if you, we were talking earlier about how some of the uh, opponents of the kinds of programs that your organization offers, you know, sort of selectively spin certain things, and they would they would hold up this example of um, suggesting to people that they have unconscious bias against people who are different from them as sort of this heretical belief. It was probably one of the principles that was prohibited by the executive order. And yet a trial judge in Minnesota gave an instruction to the jury 
reminding them that they have these biases and they should they should make sure to think about that as they're evaluating the evidence and deciding the verdict. So I think from a lawyer's standpoint, that was a pretty unusual development. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that before. And then uh, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter. And I just wanted a, uh, another example of how opponents of diversity have sort of selectively or intentionally spun things is that they've always portrayed Black Lives Matter as meaning other lives don't matter, which of mm -hmm. course is just absolutely false. If Black Lives Matter had decided to call themselves Black Lives Also Matter, I think they would have conveyed the same message and you know it would have been harder for people to you know, to, to make these attacks against them, because of course, no one is suggesting that other people's lives don't matter. It's just that the group of people who for 400 years have been uh, mistreated in ways that are unimaginable to anybody else in American history, want to remind people that their lives matter too. And yet again, that was an example of how things were, were spun out of control. Going to corporate America's response, I certainly, I think, of course, and Jim mentioned this, there's been a lot of I'll say there's been a lot of talk, a lot of talk from corporate America on these issues. And I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's it's words count and it's important to take those positions. There's been some sort of overt criticism or confrontation between corporate America and, you know, frankly, it's it's Republican Party legislators and Donald Trump. And there's been some willingness to sort of get in their face. Um not necessarily that much. And there's been some action um, that we've seen, especially in response to the voting rights restrictions in Georgia and how Major League Baseball removed its all-star game. What I want, you know, I'm glad for all of that myself. What I'm looking for is, and I don't mean to, when I say corporate America now, to be clear, I'm referring equally to my law firm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not, not trying to, you know, uh -huh. pot all the kettle black. I'd like to see a lot more real action, the kind of action that actually has repercussions for corporate America. To do the hard work, it's going to take more than talk. It's going to take more than uh, donations. It's going to take taking a stand, doing things that might have a negative impact on the corporation's business. It's going to take things that are very difficult, very hard work, especially, I think, focusing on the inclusion piece of DE&I. I think eliminating the sense of other and, and coming more to a, a point of welcoming people of differences into our community, making them feel comfortable at home, if you will, that's really hard to do. And it takes time. And I really want to see, hopefully, that corporate America is really focused on, on taking real steps in this area. And then it doesn't just become the issue of the day. And I, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I hope. Yeah. It's hard to know yeah. until five years from now, but I hope. And, uh, and, and part again, of what I, I, I that about my law firm equally as anybody else. And part of part of what I hear you saying, Chris, is let's hope that corporate America isn't doing something that's performative or looking good. Let's hope that we're really in it for the real change to drive inclusion, to drive real belonging inclusion, to drive equity and justice in our systems, in our society. What, what do you want to add to what Chris is saying, Jen? I couldn't agree more. And and, and I think that, and, and you've done this work for a long time in terms of even with the trainings, is that 
you know, real change does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a year. It doesn't happen in five years. It takes it takes a sustained effort and a sustained commitment to achieve transformative change. And uh, and that's what we need at all levels, including with you know at the corporate levels as well. And um, and and that and that's what you know. I'm I'm hopeful that that's what we're that we're, that's what we're going to see. Um, that it's not a matter of just uh, kind of making a verbal commitment or making a financial do- donation, which are all you know welcome and, and 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 great as well. But it's really in terms of you know what what are what are you going to do in the next you know five years, ten years, twenty years? You know where where is corporate America going to be twenty years from now? And can we can and can we say that they've made this real kind of systemic commitment to ensuring that the, that we advance diversity, that we advance equality? Um, at, at, at different levels. And, um, and so, and, and, and I think that, you know, obviously, uh, corporate America has a very important voice in all of this. And I think one important voice is that, and this is something that you alluded to earlier, is that, that this is a win-win situation, that when you promote diversity, you break down barriers of opportunities, you're going to have more talented people in the workforce, you're going to allow people the the space and the capacity to do better at their jobs because they're not weighed down by the 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 burdens of you know microaggressions or you know kind of stereotypes and you know implicit biases and so forth. You know this is something that benefits everyone, and and I think that corporate America has a really important voice in that um, because I think that people look to corporate America as you know as um, uh, you know, an entity that's striving towards progress, and you know, kind of uh, looking at trying to find talent, talent uh, in the workforce, and so forth. Um, and 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 that's what you know. I'm hopeful that we will all see in the coming years. Yeah, and and I I agree with that. I think the the what does it look like to be courageous and n- not just talk um, things that seem you know like good talking points, but I know, as you said, Chris, in your law firm, even in my firm, we work on diversity and inclusion issues. And for me, I'm learning there's always more levels of my voice challenging even my white male peers um, to um, see our blind spots and how we can perpetuate um, bias around gender or other dynamics and stuff. So it's not an easy, not a path, but there's deeper levels, particularly insiders those who are men or white men or whoever in your interactions with others how do you how do you still perpetuate the safety or not not addressing these things or your comfort over uh really seeing and addressing change um you know corporations like any organizational entity can be uh, risk averse and you know so some of this is about taking risks as you said getting uncomfortable um, speaking courageously, I remember the challenges to some of the the corporate challenges in Georgia to the voting by, by Delta and um, Coca Cola weren't necessarily precipitated until there were several black CEOs nationally that actually called for some actions. And so, you know, are we listening to others who represent and speak for different parts of the organizations, while also the populations in the U.S.? Are we willing to um, lean into this. And I would say, you know, do we reject this oversimplified narratives that like you spoke to earlier, Chris, around, you know, 
this uh, simplified thing that Black Lives Matter means other lives don't matter. It's like um, a lot of people in this country have, you know, white people were growing up taught to be colorblind. I don't see color. I just treat everybody the same, not realizing that, you know, that might be feel good from an intent of equality, but it's basically perpetuating others assimilating to our world. And they hear it as you'll treat me the same as long as I fit into your box, your culture, keep you comfortable. And so I've got to learn to not just see sameness in all of us as humans, but to see difference and see the felt lived experience, lived experience of others including Asian Americans today and what's happening with the prejudice around COVID and all kinds of perpetuations of hate crimes. Um, that I've, what do I got to do to let myself feel that is real, see that as real? And how does that play out amongst my colleagues at work, even when it's happening to them outside of work? And then they come with that energy or that trauma or that dynamic. How do I help that be held up? How do we lean into those conversations about race or other issues in the workplace rather than avoid them, perhaps for my own comfort as a white person? And how do I get more comfortable being uncomfortable about those conversations? <clears throat> and maybe, maybe I feel some uh, guilt or some shame or something about that. <clears throat> and that's not meant to be the primary motive of these conversations. Um, the primary conversation focus is a win-win for all of us and a, a way for me to understand, you know, I don't have to um, take responsibility for something I didn't do, but I'm responsible for how's my experience as a, uh, whether I'm a white male insider or uh, a, a woman, a white woman versus a woman of color, or how is my experience different than others in and out of work? And how does that impact my need to partner with others in ways that I haven't thought of, how do I reach for and create new connections across difference for solidarity in and outside of the workplace? Um, how do I take vulnerable risks to speak my confusions around these issues? Those are all pieces that I think, how can corporations um, create the space for that kind of learning as opposed to, wow, oh, it's not, we can't, we can't have those conversations anymore, which is the attempt of the EO and things to censor that. So we got a few minutes left. What else do you, any of you want to say in closing messages to the listeners out there about thinking about this? Jen, you want to go first? Sure. Um, you know, I think that what, what the, you know, not only the past year, but the past four years, to be honest, you know, that what the Trump administration has really shown is that, that when it comes to, you know, race and, and gender equality, there is no neutral position that uh, that the past the past few years and, and absolutely the past you know year with the pandemic and and with the the focus on police violence in the black community, that it's not enough to just stand by and, and remain silent because you know that is really promoting the status quo and what we've seen the status quo to be is just continuing. Um, inequalities that create harm in so many different communities. And so it's been very heartening for people to kind of take a stand and a voice and say that 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 mm -hmm. um, to take a voice um, to, to, to make a stand to say that that they too are uh, in, in full support of of creating a, a better world, a better country, you know, a better society. And uh, and 
and you know, and I'm very hopeful that that we will make progress. That's the reason why I do what I do. I wouldn't be a civil rights lawyer if I didn't believe that we can, as a country, move forward when it comes to racial justice. And and obviously, corporate America and the private industry um, is a really important part of that. And I think the more that uh, the, the more companies, more executives, the more you know, industries are you know, vocal on these issues, their, you know, influence can have tremendous ripple effects, um, you know, across, across the country. So I'm very encouraged by that. And I also uh, really want, again, to encourage uh, corporate America to, to stay in this for the long run, to really, you know, you know, talk, you think about, you know, you know, producing outcomes. This is, this is a moment to try to really do produce an outcome, make that commitment to ensure that this is not just about talking about these issues, but actually achieving change. And, and I do believe that, you know, together we can, we can make that happen. Thanks, Jen. So I'm going to close with an apology to corporate America and a Mm. request. The apology is, uh, you know, I do think corporate America has a, a unique role and a unique responsibility to address these issues. But part of the reason for that is because our political system is so dysfunctional. And it has been for quite some time, really, you know, maybe the last 15, 20 years, if at least, because the kinds of things that we're talking about here, you know, in, in promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion should not be controversial. They should not be partisan. They they can benefit everyone, but yet they are. So our political system is so dysfunctional that the the onus sort of falls on corporate America. And for that, I apologize. You know, the, um, but you know, corporate America as the, in its role as employers, the vast majority of the American people, you know, really can have an enormous impact on the lives of people in their role as employers and uh, both in terms of how those people uh, experience the workplace and how they experience their lives generally. So that's the sort of the apologies. My request of corporate America is, and I was thinking about this of late, is, you know, we have this ideal in America that I think it comes from the Declaration of Independence, right? All men are created equal. And now we say all people. At least we've we've come that far. Um, And maybe that was an ideal that it was always meant to be an aspiration and it wasn't really something that we intended to achieve. But I think for far, far, far too long, our country has been far, far, far too removed from that ideal. There is an enormous gap and has been for quite some time between the reality And the idea that all people are created equal or all people should be treated equal. And I just encourage everyone, including corporate America, including my law firm, that we should have the the commitment and the fortitude to really move our country closer to the ideal of equality for all people. And if even if we don't get there, let's just get, you know, let's move the needle in that direction. We can easily see there's a problem. We can easily see some of the solutions. It's just a question of doing it. And it's been, I think, long overdue. It's just to do the right thing and live by the golden rule. In a lot of ways, it's that simple. And we just have to do it. And I hope we all do. Um, And again, I don't mean to preach 
because I think, you know, me personally and my own employer uh, needs to focus on this and improve in this area, just like everyone else. But that's my request of corporate America. And again, I apologize for putting the onus on you, but I don't know where else to put it. Yeah, that's well said, both of you. You know, I, I agree. There's a vacuum of leadership in the country by that political dysfunction of finding, you know, and, and if we're going to create tr- justice, we have to speak to truth and we have to allow the truth to be spoken. And, you know, there may be a way for people in corporate America to come across those divides where they're taught in different media channels to see partial views of the world that are all incomplete. How do they actually find the difference? And um, some of the diversity momentum has happened in corporate America that hasn't happened in other places. And so it has shown as a possibility for progress. And um, yeah, all of us have to ask what kind of world do we want to have our grandsons, granddaughters, and generations down to, you know, to, to, um, to show up in and reject the simple narratives out there that are, um, you know, blocking people from exploring across difference. What is really being happening? Yeah, Jen, you have another thought here. Well, I do because as you know, I was thinking if I if I had to tell corporate America anything, what would I say? Yeah. And and there is just one final point that I think is really important, and and that is to listen to and really focus and uplift the experiences of the people who are who are most marginalized, who are most struggling, uh, you know, most in crisis. And I think that obviously corporate America has a big role to play in improving the lives of so many people because, you know, we live in a country where people cannot afford health care. We live in a country where people cannot afford, you know, a decent, decent home to live in. And, uh, and you know, and, and there are real just struggles that, that everyday people are experiencing. And I think that, you know, really focusing on their experiences and their voices and their needs, I think, is also really crucial when it comes to thinking about the role that that corporate America can play. Because you know, it's their employees, but also their customers. Their you know, there's just um, there's a lot more that we can do to to um, bridge the tremendous you know, income inequalities that we have in this country, and and that of course is very much connected to racial and gender inequalities as well. Awesome. Well, Jen and Chris, it's been a wonderful to spend this time with you reconnecting and so deeply appreciative of our partnership and your work, each of you in the world, and look forward to continued collaboration. Thanks for today. Well, thank you, thank you. for ha- having us. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFTP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.